Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. We're glad to see you here. Join us for worship. Why don't we all stand, if you're able. Let's, uh, let's sing to the King of Kings this morning.
Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. If this is your first time joining us for our worship service, we are so glad that you are here. On your way in, you should have received a bulletin. On there, you will find our Connect card. If you are looking to get connected with the church, we encourage you to fill out that Connect card so we can get to know you. If you have new contact information, please fill out that Connect card so we can keep you updated. On the other side, you will find our prayer card. If you have anyone in your life who is in need of prayer, please fill out the prayer card or visit our website at ljcc.org prayer. On your way out, you can drop these cards off in the foyer or the box mounted on the wall. We are in an exciting time as a church family and there's a lot happening. And so we wanna invite you to our vision night on December 6th, we're going to be here at 5 o'clock, we're going to have tacos, and that night we're going to be sharing the story and really the heart behind all that God is doing. Randall and I have been having a lot of conversations about this, and we want to bring you in on the conversation. Uh, you've gotten information, but this is a conversation. We want to be able to reflect uh, with you. We'll be doing the talking, uh, but we want to be uh, doing it in your presence. 
talk about where we've been, where we're going, and how we think we're going to get there, and why we believe this is exactly what God wants us to do at this time, at this place, in this community. As we do that, we want to be prayerful, and we want to worship together, and so we want to invite you out that night, bring your family, uh, invite people to come out and to hear the story of what God is doing here at La Jolla Community and Grace City Church. We hope you have major FOMO, fear of missing out, because this is going to be a night you will want to be a part of and that you'll want to tell other people about. So come on out, get something to eat, uh, worship God together, uh, be part of the conversation, and get a sense for what God might be teeing you up to do uh, in the days and months ahead. Yep. We'll see you then. Thanks. It's up for a Grammy. Who knew? I don't know. It's being... You know, with the writer's strike and all that, they're taking anything now. For, you know, so we're going to fill this. This will be a Netflix feature. So you, uh, it's just the beginning of a big thing. I uh, hope you do come on Wednesday night. It's going to be a, a really great night to worship God, to uh, reflect on where he's brought us, where he's going to take us. Uh, all good. Well, hey, today we're, we're launching into Advent. Advent. The Latin phrase that means total stress. And uh, no, uh, it's a fantastic way for the body of Christ to remember important parts about our story. Uh, one of the great things uh, as a parent, you get to tell your kids things that they wouldn't otherwise know, which they always appreciate no matter how old they are. And then as a grandparent, it, it just increases. You get to tell your kids things uh, that at one level are completely beyond they, what they can factor because they can't imagine their parents being babies. You know, when your mom was your age, you know, they're like, they can't get their head around that. But it's wonderful when you have that opportunity coming up, say, at Christmas or Thanksgiving or other, other times to talk about your origin story as a family, the good, the bad, the indifferent. Uh, everybody in Australia brags about being born from a convict. You know, everybody who was a bad dude in England got sent to Australia. And to this day, it's a point of pride to go, right, yeah, well, and they'll start telling you about their, their, their uh, family. Uh, what is your family of origin story? Who, who do you look back to? Who do you talk about? Uh, Randall was up here preaching a few weeks ago. Uh, it was a good two hours, by the way, Randall. That was a great sermon. Thank you so much, because it made me look good, and I go long. You know? so, no, it was a fantastic focus, a brief insight into, into one of the Word of God, but also Randall talking about his grandfather and that legacy uh, and if you weren't here, ask him to tell you about it. It's powerful, profound. Um, so that's what we're doing at Advent. We're remembering who we are, uh, from whom we have come. Uh, all of us are adopted. <laughs> we're, we're, we're grafted into. Unless you are a son or daughter of Abraham, you are, you are adopted and grafted into uh, this movement of God's Spirit to redeem the world. Hey, I want to give you a quick heads up in case you weren't um, prepared. Next Sunday... Uh, the Nobel Prizes will be uh, announced. I'm just telling you. Uh, if you haven't made arrangements to be there, haven't thought about what you're going to say. Uh, you know, the Nobel Prize awards prizes in chemistry, medicine, uh, literature, etc. cetera. Uh, and of course, they, they present one for peace. And uh, occasionally, the Peace Prize has been given to people with questionable credentials. Uh, this is probably the weakest link in the great Nobel um, legacy, is the Peace Prize. It may as well be called the Nobel Prize for Politics, you know. But it's the Nobel Peace Prize. So I'm working on an acceptance speech, because just in case, you don't know what disreputable character they'll come up with as a compromise. You can be the last guy on the list, but as they argue with their way through the list, they finally go, oh, forget, let's just take this guy. If you get the call this week, don't say I didn't warn you. Uh, <laughs> But I, as I thought about that, I saw that announcement, and a big deal, but then I thought, wait, the noble Alfred Nobel, I remember his story. How did Alfred Nobel end up being the guy who funded the Peace Prize? Well, it's an interesting story. May as well, I, maybe he's from an Australian family, I don't know, because it's pretty much a way to kind of whitewash your otherwise checkered past, because... In 1888, his brother Ludwig passed away. 
And of course, all the newspapers were prepared with, you know, the obituary uh, for him. And fortunately, they had all prepared one, uh, not for Ludwig, but for Al Alfred. And so uh, this major, major, major uh, French publication has this massive banner saying, the merchant of death dies. <laughs> so, so congratulations, Alfred. You'll be known forever as the merchant of death, you know, because uh, he invented uh, dynamite and all kinds of other things that are, are useful, good, but have been put to some pretty bad purposes. So anyway, he said, okay, I need to rebrand myself. And so he wanted to rebrand himself from being the merchant of death, destruction, chaos, catastrophe, uh, to, the, to the Prince of Peace. He wanted to be known as the Merchant of Peace, the Prince of Peace. And so that's how he came up with the, the Nobel Peace Prize. So every time you say it, you have to say the Nobel Peace Prize. You don't say the Nobel Dynamite Originated Peace Prize. You just say Peace Prize. But the true champion of peace who rules the nations is who? Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. And that's what we celebrate at Advent. He is not the Prince of Retail Sales. This is how most Americans would probably answer the survey. Is Jesus the Prince of what? Ah, merchandising, uh, Black Friday, I don't know. Well, you know. No, that was Good Friday. No, he was, I don't know. He was the Prince of Peace, the original and only Prince of Peace. The true champion of peace who rules the nations is Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. The true champion of peace who rules the nations. Now, it's not apparent that he's ruling the nations right now. But nonetheless, he is the Prince of Peace who will rule the nations. Um, Isaiah tells us this. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I want to go back from that uh, verse, back in history, and, and read you a, a, a brief passage from Genesis 49.10. Uh, to put this in perspective, where does this idea come from, this messianic idea? Uh, we find it, uh, if, uh, in the Jewish tradition, it comes out of Genesis 49.10. We, we think of Isaiah. Think, oh, yeah, I, know all, I know all about the Christmas passages in the Old Testament. Well, nobody that I know has ever quoted <laughs> Genesis 49.10. Uh, what looks to be an obscure reference to people we don't know about. And this is why reading the Old Testament is essential. If you don't read the Old Testament, you have no context for the new. You miss a lot of the story. It's like watching the last Harry Potter movie, the last, you know, um, film in The Lord of the Rings or something. You're going, uh, who are these people? What are they doing? Why? I hope you do read the birth accounts of Jesus in Matthew uh, 1 and 2 and Luke 1 and 2. But I want you to read it with this in mind from, from Genesis 49.10. It says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Now, that's not an obscure passage. I don't know what is. But let me put it in context for you. In Genesis, we see you know, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the creation of the world, the fall of the world, the compromise of humanity um, in rebellion against God. Then you see God raising up uh, a people, a person, Abraham and Sarai, uh, and giving them a mandate. Through you, I'm going to people the nations. I'm going to bless all the nations. I'm going to raise up a tribe, a family, against all odds. And then out of this family uh, come all these people like you know, uh, Isaac and Jacob, etc. Well, as you know, um, uh, Moses comes along and uh, he, is, he is the tail end of what had been quite an illustrious experience of, of the Jews in Egypt. Because 400 years previously, and we see this in, in this section of Genesis, uh, Joseph, one of the sons, is betrayed by the brothers and he is, he is sent through this series of experiences, the last of which he ends up in Egypt as the right hand to Pharaoh. There's a famine in the land. It's going really badly in Israel. And so uh, Jacob says to his sons, you got to go down and get us food. We're going to starve here. 
And why did Egypt? Because Egypt, for everybody, for the Greeks, for the Romans, for everybody, was the breadbasket of the world. Our Central Valley in California is, is a major part of produce. It, it's an unappreciated asset, so to speak. As you drive by at 1,000 miles an hour down 5, or you know, 1,001 miles an hour down 99, um, you're driving through the Central Valley, one of the most spectacular places uh, in the world in terms of productivity. Well, so that was Egypt. It was a breadbasket of the world, of the ancient world. So they go down there, and all kinds of interesting th things happen, and the brothers are reunited with Joseph. It's, it's shocking. In Genesis 50, that's the famous chapter where you know, Jacob is dead, and, and the brothers are going, oh, he's going to kill us now. He said he forgave us, but now that dad's gone, who knows? And he says, no, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Let that stick in your head. What, he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. I know some of you are in really difficult situations right now. You know, if, if, you haven't, if you don't read through the prayer list and pray for people, you don't see the difficult situations they're in. And some of those difficult situations are from people doing really bad things. And it's easy to say, then, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to resent this. I'm going to, you know, be afraid of this or whatever. But, but Joseph had this incredible perspective. He said, what you intended for evil or for whatever intent you had, God intended for good. So that's how Genesis 50 re resolves it all. But in Genesis 49, Jacob knows he's dying, and he gathers his sons together. He wants to give them their legacy. It's, a, it's like a prophetic and blessing moment. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be great for the end of your life? You knew you were going to die, and you could then gather your family and offer them a blessing. It would be a little unnerving for your family, though, if, if your family is arrayed in front of you, and you start over here and you say, now you... <laughs> Here's my concern about you, uh, you know, and, and this is what's going to happen in, in Genesis 49. Because there's all these sons, a dozen sons, and so he starts with the oldest ones. And you think, well, the oldest ones are going to get the inheritance. But no. Jacob says, you. No. Here's why. Uh, you. No. Uh-uh. And I won't give you all the stories. You can go back and read it. I mean, but it's like stuff you go, oh, really? They did that? And so they go through three sons, and finally Joseph, uh, Jacob gets to Judah, after whom the, the, you know, the region of Israel is, you know, you know, there's the north and the south. The south is called Judah. Jerusalem is in Judah. Um, the great lion of Judah is a, is a, is a big, big um, you know, part of uh, Hebrew theology. And so he says to Judah... The scepter will not depart from Judah. Now, he's speaking to Judah, but he's speaking to Judah in the context of all the brothers. And so he's telling all the brothers how it's going to go. But he's speaking to Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah. The scepter being the sign of your authority and your power. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. Until... He to whom it belonged shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. This is a messianic prophecy. This is a messianic statement. There will come a ruler, uh, and at that point, the scepter will stop being passed. Because ultimately, from Judah, generationally, it ended up with David. David's son Solomon, I guess, has the scepter. Pretty impressive guy. Now this, this, the nation becomes divided. Oh my gosh, he gets a scepter. Well, we'll trace it through the line of Judah and until Jesus comes along. So it's Jesus who fulfills not only what we read in Isaiah 9-6, for to, to us a child is born, uh, and, and you get more detail, but really he's the one to whom the scepter belongs. And there's no one else to give it to. He's the fulfillment. He's the answer to the big question, when? How will we know? He's the answer to the question, how long? How long? Let that sink in. We're celebrating today a season that was prophesied. A couple thousand years before Jesus was born. It gives me goosebumps thinking about this. 
Now, if you're, all, if you're new to all this, if you're saying, well, I don't even know what you're talking about. I've never read the Bible. I don't know anything about the, the story. Well, you're jumping in. Uh, you want to go binge this series later by reading through the Bible and, and picking up all the, the content because it's a phenomenal story. In fact, I, 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 for those of you who are literary-minded, you cannot understand Western civilization literature but for the Bible. Literally. That's not an exaggeration. You just cannot. To this day, people who would be call themselves atheists or agnostics writing literature will make some kind of a biblical reference, one way or the other. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the rule of staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. This is the moment we're in. Jesus has come into the world to save it. He will return to the world to claim it. And what is this story that we celebrate in Advent? It's not this story. You can be saved, and here's how. The American salvation story has been reduced to, you can be saved, and here's how. It's disconnected from any context that would give a person an idea that it's, you can be saved, and here's how. Uh, and this is not a gotcha moment, but I, I got this, I got a, 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 an email from a person who's in, in graduate theological education at a very fine place, and they said, you know, I'm working on this, this, this project in theological research, and uh, I wonder if you'd answer these questions, and I know the person really well, and they said, if you, I'm trying to collect all this data, and I want you to be part of this research thing, so could I get some answers to these questions for you? Well, the questions were interesting because I thought, wow, these questions really aren't fully developed. And um, I said, in my note to them, you know, the gospel is not, you can be saved and here's how. That's sort of the way this person was approaching it. You know, you know can you lose your salvation was, was part of the question that this person was exploring. And that person's approach was, you can be saved and here's how. And I said, that's just not the gospel. And you might say right now, oh my gosh, this guy's going off the rails. That is the gospel. I've had any number of pastors say to me, no, no, I preach it every week. I'm like, you do not preach this every week. This is preached by everybody but you. Everybody who wants to sell you something, who wants to sell you an ideology, wants to sell you a, a heresy, a, 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 a false view of God, they'll tell you, I know how to be saved. I know how you can be saved. Here's how. Here's the gospel, right? This is what we get fulfilled from this prophetic moment with, with Jacob and Judah. All things were created through and for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfills Israel's story. He fulfills all the promises of God completely. There's only one fit, and it's him. And then he invites us to be a part of it. You can be saved. And here's how. You see the difference that context makes? This is why Advent is important. It's not just one more, okay, let's do something for the church. It's that let's remember who we are. Let's remember the gospel we give, because otherwise it's going to be a, a cheap grace gospel. Hey, just, just say these magic words, you'll be good. Disconnected from any relationship with the living God. We were robbing people if we don't help them understand you can be saved in here's how, because the living God and the loving God is making it possible for you to be in a relationship with him. This is not a lucky rabbit's foot, rub the lamp. This is open your heart, your mind, your soul, every bit of you to the living God who makes this possible. It's stunning, it's breathtaking. So why do billions of people still celebrate Christmas? Because Jesus keeps showing up with his scepter. profound, isn't it? And how we have so minimized and flattened the story, it's sort of shocking and embarrassing for all of us. Our culture celebrates Jesus' birth as if, as if it were, like I said, the prince of retail shopping. That's not a put down, it's just to say, where's all the energy, where's all the effort? I'm not against any of that. I love giving gifts. Receiving gifts is not so much anymore. I got everything I could possibly want or need. And, but I love, I love giving gifts. I love the fact that you, know, you can figure out what's going to bless a person. Uh, Henry Kissinger died this week. Uh, 
the young, young go soon. I mean, he died too soon, I think. But Oh, he's 100, that's right. He lived an amazing 100 years. Henry Kissinger's genius as, as one of the greatest diplomats of all time was that he would try to figure out right up front what do you need and what do you want. Now, he might not want to give it to you or be able to give it to you. He might not agree with what you want. But his first thing was, what is it that you want? And he would tell everybody up front, if you're a Russian, Chinese, didn't matter. He would say, this is what I want. I, as in representing the United States of America, this is what we want. I want to be sure I know what you want. And from there, we can have a real conversation. Why do billions of people still celebrate Christmas? Because Jesus keeps showing up. Why does he show up? Because he knows what we need. He's not satisfied with what we want. He knows what we need. And he's delivering it. So Christmas is a transforming moment that continues generating transforming momentum. And this is that moment of salvation. And some of you would say, gosh, I, I didn't ever have a moment when I remember receiving Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I don't have one of those great stories. You know, uh, most 15-year-old girls can't say, well, you know, I was in a biker gang, and then I, I sold heroin, and then I robbed banks, and then I, uh, and then I met Jesus, you know. Um, rather, a typical person who grows up in a Christian home says, well, you know, I've just been hearing this, and I've, I've absorbed it, and I, it, it, my, from my mom and dad, my grandparents, and my family members and friends, and there was this coach that was a Christian, there was a, a youth worker who really, you know, and, and I finally one day realized, I believe this. Apart from all that, I believe this for me. You know, so that's their testimony. Other people have a, boom, that was the date. I was at the Billy Graham crusade, and I went forward. Or I was at Forest Home, or I was at a Young Life camp, or I was at, at a crew meeting at UCSD, or I was with InterVarsity at this thing at, on you know, Catalina Island, and they gave this call. And I, but this is the transforming moment. At whenever it is, however it happens, at that point when you finally go, yes, I believe this, that moment isn't just a moment frozen in time. I'll always look back fondly, and when Jesus came into my life, I miss him so. I left him back there. Rather, it's the transforming moment that has transforming momentum. You know this from it being a kid, the wonder you had as a kid, seeing something for the first time that you didn't understand. And now as an adult with a PhD, you thoroughly understand all the mechanics of it, all the, the physics of it, all the chemistry of it, all the whatever of it. But at the same time, you still say, when I see the sunset, I just love it. I just look at the sunset and I go, man, that's beautiful. Some of you have heard me say, standing on, 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 a, on the beach years ago with a guy named Roger Beachy, Swift Research Institute, the god of plant science internationally. Uh, he's standing there and, and it's a green flash, perfect moment. I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to get a little bit of a green flash going here. And we're watching it, and boom, we got a little green flash. And I said, Roger, how would you explain that? And he gets it, goes into this five-minute brilliant dissertation about all the optics and the physics. And, the, and, and, and I mean, it's jaw-droppingly interesting, and he's done. And I'm like, well, that's great. And I turned to his wife and said, Sandy, what do you think? She goes, I think it's beautiful. And Roger goes, I'm with her. That's what I think, too. Okay, this is the transforming moment that brings us to this place of absolute wonder. It's the most scandalous, shocking, unlikely event in human history. Why? Because it's true. <laughs> it's so outrageous, and yet it all adds up. And now as a person fully developed, perhaps, you're saying, I still don't understand it. I, I can only marvel at it. I, I, my, I've got a, you, know, you might have a degree in theology. You might know how to read things in Greek and Hebrew. And yet at the same time, at, at the end of it, you say, ah. This was the greatest theologian of the 20th century, Karl Barth, B-A-R-T-H. You know, you the shelves are filled with the books he wrote. He influenced so many pastors during World War II and the Nazi regime in Germany and following. And, and you can't really be in the conversation theologically if you haven't touched somewhere with Karl Barth. And when he came to the United States for the first time in 1963, the New York newspapers pounced on him. They wanted to know, this brilliant guy. Uh, w what does he believe? And so somebody said, can you summarize all your work? Can you summarize everything you've been teaching and doing research about? He said, yes, I can. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, he was a person who walked in awe 
with the living God. He knew so much esoteric stuff. You try to read his stuff and you think, I know the words, I have no idea what they mean. This is for you and me to go deep and understand that all the connections. Oh yeah, I'm familiar with that thing out of Genesis 49.10. But rather, what I'm really familiar with is the way God works in me and through me and gives me a heart for other people and lets me be part of his mission. So Romans tells us, and Paul wrote into the Romans, chapter 5, For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, he's talking about Adam, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man? Jesus Christ. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. A transforming moment. Sin and death are crushed. He rises again from the dead. Everything is different. It's now different, but it's not completely there yet. He will return in glory and complete it. But right now we get to live in this incredible moment. It's tempting to be complacent because we have to wait. Peter answered this. He said, I know some of you are saying, why? Why does it take so long for him to return again? Well, God doesn't want anybody to miss it. He says, because he's patient and kind, and he's, he's, he's extending the time. He might return any moment, but he's giving us time. So what do we do in the meantime? Well, we shine for him. Uh, next summer, an athlete will light the Olympic torch with a flame passed hand-to-hand, right? That's a pretty inspiring thing. When you see the, the beginning of the, of, the, of the Olympic process, long before the games actually open, an athlete will get the flame from last year's flame, and then they'll do this whole thing where they move it around the world. It's really special when you see it. You might see an older, retired athlete who couldn't do what they did initially. Now they're passing the flame on. It's very powerful imagery. And it's such a great image. And that's what we're doing with the light of Christ. So Christmas, all the lights, they're not just incidental, frou-frou. They're not just, you know, um, nothing. What they are is the deep, deep symbolism of what Jesus has done and what Jesus is doing. A light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot extinguish it. So we see these verses. Um, the light shines in the darkness, the darkness has not overcome it. John 1, 5. Uh, John eight twelve. I am the light of the world, Jesus says. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And again in John 12, I've come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. And as a result of that, do we hang back in the darkness looking at the light? No. Paul writes in the Philippians and he says, you are lights in the world, holding on to the word of life. Is that word of life that lights us up. And it's not word just on a page. It's the literal embodied word of life. Who is Jesus? The logos. The word came into the world. And, and establish his tent among us. So remember who you are in Christ as you walk through Advent. If you're not in Christ, then, then stop for a moment and say, why am I not in Christ? Or why have I wandered far from Christ? Or why do I keep resisting what Christ I know wants to do in my life, but I'm holding on to my own version of me? I want his salvation, but I want my version of life. That's a big conflict to resolve. Let it go. Let it go. Remember who you are in Christ and what you have to offer the world in his name. Again, I draw on, on Paul writing to a bunch of people like us. The, the Corinthians were the Californians. The Corinthians may as well have been second Californians, 5, 17 to 21. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he, she is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Somehow, we get to be part of this unbroken chain of light, passing that light along. Christmas Eve will do that. It's one of the most wonderful times at Christmas Eve. The sun has set, it's dark, and we sing, Oh, Holy Night. And, and we'll, we'll, one candlelight will light up this room. It's powerful. Uh, it's 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 the ultimate moment for a 10-year-old boy. I'm, I'm in a room with my parents, and live fire is involved. It's just, can't get better than that, you know. And it's okay for me to be playing with fire right here, right now. 
Remember who you are in Christ, what you have to offer the world in his name. He was not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Not just back at that transforming moment, but through the transforming moment, continue to be reconciled to God. Lord, am I doing what, what I'm doing because of you, for you, to reflect you? Is what I'm doing shining your light in a way that causes people to feel alive and want more of it? We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I'll ask you again, how are you responding to the good news of great joy concerning Jesus' advent? Toward the end of the Christmas season, we call it the Epiphany, when the wise men show up and give him gifts. I, I love that passage in Luke 2, how can you not? There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Uh, there's no ambient light in this setting. There's no ambient light. It's dark. Dark, dark, dark. And all of a sudden, there's this fearsome creature, and there's this massive display of light. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Now, you think of shepherds as being people who follow sheep around. You think, oh, maybe they're like sheep. No. Shepherds are tough dudes. Uh, California was peopled by, the whole eastern side of the Sierra was peopled by Basque shepherds. If you want great Basque food, I think you have to go to Bakersfield. And there's one great, great Basque restaurant still left in Bakersfield, all family-style and you, you walk in, you're part of the family. The Basque shepherds are tough dudes. You wouldn't mess with a shepherd. And they were terrified. Terrified isn't, I was slightly concerned, and I thought to call a friend, but no. I'll handle it. No, terrified is, I'm done. I don't know what to do. There's no going away. <laughs> There's no getting around this. There's no getting away from it. I'm just here. And so the angel says to them, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. We'll be exploring this in the next few weeks. Let me just end by, by talking about that word Messiah for a second. I said that, that passage out of Genesis 49.10 is a messianic passage. There's no mention of the Messiah in there. Nonetheless, it's a messianic passage. Why? Because out of this prophecy, this blessing and prophecy from Jacob to Judah is the hope of what is mentioned in Genesis 3. I'm going to do something about this, God says. Now it's formalized. Now, you know, through Abraham, I'm going to bless the nations. And now through this very specific prophecy from Jacob to Judah, and so this idea of the one to come, whose scepter will be supreme, is a messianic picture. And to, uh, to say uh, the Messiah of God is just to, be, just to say the anointed one, the one who is rubbed with oil. And that's the picture of a, of a king is anointed, a priest is anointed. So this idea of Messiah grew in its, in its sense of you know, scope and everything because it comes out of places where it's not mentioned. But how do you talk about it? Well... This one who's going to come, he who actually deserves and, 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 and this, this scepter is being held for him, is the one who is anointed. He's the one God has raised up. And so that's how we get the language of, of Messiah. So you know, Messiah means anointed one, and as does Christos. You wonder, okay, is Jesus Christ just um, a westernized version, and we've kind of misappropriated a Jewish word? No. Christos is a Jewish word. In the sense that, in the 3rd in the century, 250 and following, the world spoke Greek. 
Everything was done in Greek. At home, it was Aramaic or Hebrew, but in the, in the marketplace, in the politics of the world, it was Greek. So the, the priests and the scribes said, we need a Greek version of the Tanakh, the, the Old Testament, Torah, uh, Prophets and Writings, Torah, Nevi'im, uh, Ketuvim. So Tanakh is the, is the acronym. The Tanakh is written in Hebrew. They said, we have so many Jews now dispersed because of exile and other things that we need to give them a Greek version of this. So they worked on it. It's called the Septuagint. And that is both, is that it, some say that was 70 priests who did it or it took 70 years to do it. So it was a long process. But that's how we get um, the, uh, the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. And so when they find the Dead Sea Scrolls, what they, what, why is that important? Well, because it says... Has this Bible, the, the Hebrew or the Greek, changed over time? And the Dead Sea Scrolls, they pull out and go, no, it's consistent. And so Christos simply means one who is anointed with oil. So you're saying Jesus Messiah, Jesus Christ, it's the same thing. Some words are, are transliterated. You know, shalom in Hebrew is shalom the way we use it. Some words are translated. And so Messiah is translated into Christos because that was the absolute best way that the priests and the scribes thought would, would adequately, effectively, accurately convey who the Messiah is. You with me on this? These are not just obscure esoteric things for people who don't have dates. This is for people who are very much engaged in the world and they're saying this is the language that we have to understand in, in order to value it properly. Jesus then is Messiah Savior and Lord. Jesus is the ruler of the nations to whom every knee will bow and he's come to save his people. And the question I have for you is have you received him as your Savior? And more than that, he's not just a Savior, not just as to minimize that, he's certainly Savior, he's also sovereign. He's the king who is also the high priest. He is your sovereign, that it means he's your Lord. That's why we see Jesus Lord and Savior. He is the sovereign who is also the savior. Phenomenally profound, humbling to, to understand this. Are you following him as your Lord if you have accepted him as your savior? You can't separate them anyway. If you are here and you say Jesus is my Lord, he is your savior. If you say he's my savior, he is your Lord. How is that going for you? Don't let your, your embarrassment of being imperfect stop you from continuing in that relationship. Don't let your pride about, I know it enough, I don't really need to mess with it anymore, get in the way of that. Christmas celebrates the presence of Christ the King, bringing his kingdom to earth for us. It's for you. As we come to this table, he's inviting you as sovereign and savior to not just commemorate an interesting historic meal, but to continue in this mysterious way, to recognize that he is among us. Where two or three are gathered together in his name, people are fighting. I mean, people are worshiping. There's a lot of, a lot of conflict in the world. We see conflict in the church, but ultimately, it's Jesus, the Prince of Peace, who's going to sort it out. So we come to him, submitting ourselves to him as our Savior and our Lord. And so you come, no matter what condition you're in, if you come in Jesus' name, that's enough. Because he welcomes you to come in his name. And you receive that cup. It literally is, stands for, is symbolic of his blood. It's also substantive in that somehow he's present in that. I don't know how to explain that. That bread is his body given for you. How it works, I can't adequately explain it. I just know it's true. It's real. This is not an empty symbolic ceremony. This is a moment and part of the transforming moment of Christ's work in your life. So wherever you are, whatever you bring with you, bring it to him. Lay it at his feet as he offers you this bread and this cup. You bring what you bring and he gives you the life he wants you to have to be able to deal with the things uh, you're dealing with in your life. It's a pretty good deal, isn't it? So Advent isn't really stress, it's relief. 
It's a promise of God's abiding presence. So those of you who are serving communion, come forward. Um, we're still doing our protocol. We're keeping it safe. So we have the little cup. You know, take the bread out first and then open the cup part. Um, you'll hear words like this. This is Christ's body given for you, his blood shed for you. We really believe that. We hope you believe that too. Some of you know this is the Lord's Supper. Some of, it, some of you know it as Holy Communion. Some of you know it as the Eucharist. It's all the same thing. We're thankful that God is inviting us into a meal with him that we can experience his presence. Lord Jesus, we commit these elements to you, consecrating them in your name. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your grace is sufficient because you are Lord and you are Savior. You invite us into this fulfillment of Israel's story. We can be saved and you've shown us how. We thank you that we get to call you Lord and Savior, and that also you invite us to call you friend. So we come in your name, in this holy moment, thanking you for including us as beloved sons and daughters, friends of the living God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Come forward whenever you're ready. Uh, go back to your seat. Linger over it. Listen to the music. We'll wrap up worship uh, with a benediction.
presence of the Lord for a moment. Let his wash out of his love wash over you. Let his grace renew you. Let his word speak deep into your heart, your mind. Reviving your strength. Filling you with confidence in him courage for him. Lord, we thank you that we can come into your presence as beloved children. You never turn us away. Your face lights up. Thank you for letting us reflect your glory. Thank you for letting us confess our sins and finding forgiveness and restoration. Thank you for finding encouraging words of comfort and hope from you. We pray this as we begin this Advent season, uh, knowing in full assurance that you will be giving us a new heart, a new mind to understand your ways as we open our minds and hearts to you. In your name we pray, amen. 
If we can pray for you about anything or anything that concerns you, go right out around the, the corner there to the garden in front, a lovely prayer garden. There'll be people there who will have a prayer with you if you want. You don't have to tell them what you want prayer for. They'll just pray for you. Or if you have something in particular, tell them and they'll pray for you. Uh, it's a very powerful, great gift. It's like a spiritual spa treatment to have somebody pray for you. Uh, get something to eat, pause, say hi to somebody you don't know, and that person to you that you just can't remember the name for the 40th time, ask them again and uh, laugh about it. Uh, every week we'll be building on Advent, and then the, four, or the, the 24th, I think, is that right? Christmas Eve is the 24th? We'll be gathering in here with Grace City to have a wonderful, I guess, final passing of the baton service. And moving into the next season, chapter of this church's life. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord, who loves you more than you can ask or even imagine, give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.